Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Let me take you back to Britain in the 1980s. Strict security measures kept the 300 demonstrators well away from the Prime Minister as she arrived for her speech. Margaret Thatcher was at war with the miners. What we have seen in the past few weeks is not picketing at all. A small gesture by Princess Diana became a defining image of the AIDS crisis and the devastation and discrimination it was unleashing. Today, the hospital reckoned that the princess's visit was worth all the government propaganda put together. She met the staff and the nine patients and shook hands with them all. In the city of London, the Big Bang had opened up financial trading to people of every background, making it cool to make money and to spend it. These dealers are the city's hottest properties. They won't talk openly about what they're paid, but it can run to £100,000 a year or more. Whilst in Manchester, New Order and the Hacienda were ushering in a new era of rave culture. And amongst the elegant Georgian townhouses of Bloomsbury, where else, a lesser-known revolution was underway in the world of books. It was spearheaded by a stellar group of glamorous young novelists who were all picked for the hottest new literary list. When Grant and Best of Young British came along, literary fiction in this country was just about to get sexy again. Authors on that list, like Salman Rushdie, Ian McEwan and Martin Amis, who passed away earlier this year, became household names. And 40 years later, they're still topping bestseller lists. But where are the new generation of authors boldly challenging the rules? Can publishing still make rock stars out of writers? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times, I'm Manveen Rana. Today, where did all the rock star authors go? I'm Robbie Millen. I'm the literary editor of The Times. 
What exactly does a literary editor do? What does that job consist of? Because it sounds like a good one. To be honest, I think it's the best job on the newspaper. Um, (laughs) I'm very lucky to have it, but I'm not going to make it sound too good, just in case too many competitors floating around. So it's really, in a way, it's like being a triage nurse. Because if you imagine... Every day, two sacks of books come in, all sorts of non-fiction, fiction, poetry, and you have to look at all these books and try and work out who deserves your attention, which ones are worth reviewing. Robbie, take us back to April this year, because the 2023 Granta Best of Young British Novelists list was released. That's something that happens once a decade. In your world, it's an event. It's one of the big ones. Just give us a sense of how exciting that is. What you know? How, how much is that anticipated? Well, funny enough, I started my job in 2013, but that year's grant list had already appeared. So I had to wait 10 years for this moment. It is an important moment because it, if you sort of ever spend time sort of browsing in bookshops, you always read the back jacket of a novel or something like that, and it will say, this person was a on the grant list of young writers. It's really exciting. Publishing really mm. thinks you're something that matters. I mean, this year was a very odd list of 20 because I think at least three or four of them hadn't had a novel published yet. So just talk us through who did make it onto the list this year. So there are some names that we'd already come across. We were very interested in Tom Crew. He wrote a novel called The New Life. It was a very sort of Victorian-type novel about two men at the end of the 19th century trying to make the case for why homosexuality shouldn't be regarded as a criminal matter. And then a woman called Isabel Hamad, who is Palestinian heritage. Her new one is called Enter Ghost, and it's about a group of actors putting on a play on the West Bank. Then Eleanor Catton, who 10 years ago won the Booker Prize for the Luminaries. Very large, sort of pastiche Victorian novel, not to everyone's taste. But I mean, there are one or two of them where you just think, I really don't care. Imagine writing a novel about a cellist having a love affair and whether she should give up the cello or give up love. I I don't care. (laughs) And was the reaction of the industry pretty much the same as yours? Was it a bit of, Yeah, it was actually. There was a sort of, I was worried that I'd been too dismissive because there's always the risk when we're dealing with lots of young writers And it's very difficult to sort of say, oh, they're all rubbish, especially since I barely read any of them. But I think generally there there was a sort of feeling of being underwhelmed. It just, I think it sort of shows that the novel's lost its kind of place in the hearts of educated people, that it's not as big as it should be or was. Yeah, it didn't feel like a stop traffic event. It wasn't the sort of thing people would talk about in the pub. It was certainly not, I did not hear people running out from their houses when it was announced saying yes or no or whatever, what a disaster. (laughs) It was a bit muted. (laughs) And that's after waiting 10 years for one of these lists. What's going on? For most people to understand just how significant Mm. that is, in a way you probably have to look back to 1983. Ah, yeah. And the first list. Yeah. Just tell us about that. A man called Desmond Clark, who was a part of the books marketing board, just came up with this wheeze, how can we flog more books? <laughs> with any prize, people can be very serious about it. 
It is about how do we sell them? How do we make novelists richer? How do we make publishers richer? So we shouldn't be too high-minded about it. But Desmond Clark had this wheeze. Let's create a list of 20 names, create some buzz. And he did a brilliant job. It's extraordinary how many of the names probably most people will recognise. So you had people like William Boyd, Martin Amis, Pat Barker, Ian McEwan, Kazooie Shiguru. God, you've got Nobel Laureate on it. I mean, you've got Salman Rushdie on that list as well. Yeah. Midnight's Children. Wow. It's a really stellar All list. All on the same list. Exactly. That, that's the thing. I was trying to work out how many of them are still in the charts. And when I last looked, just a sort of random week earlier on the year, William Boyd was there. Pat Barker had just fallen off, I think. Ian McCune was there. I mean, it's just extraordinary. These people still command a real readership. I mean, that is remarkable. Just give us a sense, you know, when this list came about, what was it trying to identify? How did it do such a good job of picking people who mm. have stood the test of time, who are still such big names in literature? It's possible that there was just a group of really talented people around. It just happens sometimes. It's like, why would the Beatles have happened? You mm. know. So I think there was a bit of that. But I think there was a moment when being a novelist, I think it was pretty sexy. I recently read a book by John Walsh, who was a literary editor of the Sunday Times. And he sort of wrote a book about the 80s, which he thinks is the kind of coolest area for literature. And he said that the grant list was particularly good because it helped make literary fiction cool, visible and aspirational as a career choice in a way it had never been before. And I think he's right. There was a moment when Martin Amis mattered. He would appear on chat shows. Right here. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the author, Martin Amis. Martin, are you here? Are you back there? Talking of Martin Amis, that's a very good example. Yeah. Remind us a bit about him and the people who perhaps haven't read him or haven't come across him. Because apart from being you know, a very startling at times writer and the, yeah. a formidable writer, particularly in the 1980s. He was also a character. The thing seems to be with Thatcher and with the English is that um, we only understand things that are bad for us. The smack bottom is all we... The, the tingling bottom tells us that what we're getting is good for us. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that delicious tingle in the bottom that means you've been... Corrected in the right way. You've taken your medicine. He was the sort of person who could sustain that level of interest. I mean, in a way, I think he'll probably be better remembered for his non-fiction now, books like The War on Cliché or The Moronic Inferno. I mean, what good titles. <laughs> so he's a brilliant non-fiction writer. But his first novel, The Rachel Papers, came out in early, mid-70s, caused a real sensation because it was so revolting <laughs> on one <laughs> level because it really showed what late teen men thought about the world, the desperation to get laid, whilst also being kind of bookish types. It had a wonderful cockiness. I think looking at that early Granta list, there's a lot of self-confidence to mm. it. They're kind of big, exuberant, bold characters. Big ideas. Big, big ideas. moments in history. Absolutely. World changing around you and there yeah. they are chronicling it. In a way, a bit like actors and influencers now, they almost captured a generation. They helped to shape the mood of the moment too, didn't they? 
Yes. Novels can reflect their era in all sorts of different ways. And I think one of the reasons why with the current Granta list, the one that came out in April, um, rather threw me, was that, that a lot of the novels feel quite small. They're very sort of jittery. They're very self-absorbed. Often sort of action doesn't really much extend outside of the narrator's head. They're quite inward looking, which mm. I think maybe captures some kind of spirit of the age. I suppose maybe it's the effect of too much social media. There's a sort of almost timidity. Whereas I think that 1983 list, the authors are pretty expansive and outward looking. I'm a Generation X child, so started reading serious literature in the 80s, capture something of that kind of buccaneering spirit, the kind of, I'll say what I like, I'll say exactly how I like. And do you think for children of the 80s, I suppose, reading Martin Amis, it almost helped to shape their voice? It became the voice of the generation. Everyone to sound cocky. I think so. I mean, it's very funny. A lot of my, um, well, a few of my friends, all male, they would like to be Martin Amis. And some of them haven't quite grown out of that. <laughs> some of them mature into becoming, wanting to become Ian McEwan. <laughs> it was... I love that, the evolution of the reader. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it is very aspirational. And I think that talks to John Walsh's point, who had been the literary editor back in the 80s, that there was definitely a sort of energy round novel writing and publishing, which hadn't been there before. It kind of lost its men in cardigans or ladies in cardigan sort of spirit. Yeah. Well, give us a sense of that. Tell us, what was the publishing world like in the 1980s? What would that have been like? So I think the 80s was an interesting moment because publishing's always been a bit rackety and a bit, it used to be very much small little publishing houses in Bloomsbury. You know, you'd go up old-fashioned rickety staircases. Now, Publishers are all in big glass palaces next to the Thames. It's all very corporate looking. Mm. But back then it was very much a boozy, quite posh, some things never change. It did become an era where the arrival of super agents getting big sums of money, became big marketing budgets, huge advances. But I think there were other things happening in publishing at the time, which um, all of a sudden made people a lot more interested in novelists. For instance, Waterstones was founded in 1981. Mm. So he had this proper book chain rolling out across the country. Then there was, at the highbrow end, the London Review of Books was founded in 1979, still going. All the literati read it. Even something, this I find extraordinary, the Booker Prize, which had been going since 1969, in 1981... It was televised. Good evening to you, and I bid you welcome to the Stationers' Hall in the shadow of St Paul's Cathedral for the announcement of the presentation of the Booker McConnell... There were only three channels, and one evening they gave it over to watching a bunch of literary grandees eating their dinner to find out who won. The air here is heavy with expectation and the smell of roast lamb. There was a captive audience there. You'd be on TV if you became a writer, a celebrity in your own right. With something like the Booker shortlist would come out every year. And I think it caused a lot more excitement back then. People would buy for their friends the whole shortlist of six or whatever in a way they wouldn't do today. Um, it was real. Will Beryl Bainbridge win this year? No, she won't. She never does. So people knew who the characters were. So on one level, it was a smaller world. But it was a probably a more boisterous one. 
Coming up, why are things more muted now? What happened to the free-spirited world of publishing of the 80s and 90s? That's in just a moment. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. There's been one of these grantalists every 10 years mm. since the very first yeah. one in 1983 did the ones that followed did they have the same impact were they moments where the literary world would stop and these new generation of rock stars were born it's sort of been diminishing returns so i saw a figure for that first list in 83 in the months after i think a quarter of a million copies of their books were sold And if you look at one of the most prestigious prizes in the world of literature, the Booker Prize, that 1983 cohort have had huge success. The 1989 Booker Prize for Fiction is Kazuo Ishiguro for Remains of the Day. Pat Barker's The Ghost Road. And the winner is Graham Swift, last one. Booker Prize is Ian McEwen for another Ninety-three. So let's try and think. You had Alan Hollinghurst oh. went on to win the Booker. Again, brilliant choice because he was a man that revolutionised the way people could write about gay sex. I mean, he's got beautiful descriptions in a book of the male member in all of its shapes and sizes, doing all sorts of different things. But he's done it in a very sort of he writes it beautifully, cool and elegant way. Yeah. <laughs> and then you got some like Ian Banks, most famous for the Wasp Factory. Probably the weirdest, strangest, unsettling debut novel I've ever read. It's terrific. It really passes the test of time. So I think those two alone, it's pretty damn good. But it's not quite been as dominant as that 83 list. And then the 2003 list, some good names on it. Zadie Smith, David Mitchell. So yeah, it's not bad. So two big best-selling authors there in 2003. You've got Zadie Smith who was writing very memorably about multiculturalism in Britain, and David Mitchell, who wrote the genre-bending epic Cloud Atlas. But I think by the time you get to the 2013 list, it just disappears, flakes out. Six of the original list became Booker Prize winners, but in the next three decades of Granta lists, only two authors went on to win after they'd been included, and that was Alan Hollinghurst and Ben Ockrey, both from the 1993 cohort. So that first decade of Granta seems to have seen the most success. The 2023 list, there is one Booker winner already on it, and that's Eleanor Catton. But she won the Booker Prize in 2013. I don't want to be rude about them because it's hard writing novels. I certainly couldn't do it. But there's a definite fading away, which makes me sort of wonder whether this 2023 mm. list, how many of the names will stick the course and let's imagine 40 years later still be being published and read. 
one of the really important differences, one of the reasons to look mm. back to the 80s. Back then, being on the list, being one of those mm. big celebrity rock star authors, mm. how profitable was that? How many books were they selling? How, I mean, these, these people were rich, weren't they? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's been one of the main complaints over the, certainly in the 10 years I've been in the job, is earnings from novels have sort of pretty much either collapsed or been stagnant. Royalty checks are very thin, sad-looking creatures for a lot of novelists now. So most novelists will have to have other jobs. And earlier, we talked about the boisterous world of publishing in the 80s and even the 90s. You know, the exuberance, the champagne fueled parties, the occasional bad behaviour, the authors who were celebrities on chat shows all over TV. Has publishing itself changed? I worry today with publishing that it can be a bit corporate and safe. Mm. One of the problems is is that now it's so much easier to gather information about how well a book's doing. You can now get sort of live data how well things are doing, and it probably that means certain books are now commissioned because they look like they might be a banker to sell well. But I think now there's a bit more of a safety first culture. I think possibly that publishing ha has been a bit of a victim of its own success. This kind of great moment when all of a sudden it was a rather aspirational, cool thing to be a novelist, has led to this huge explosion in creative writing courses. So oh. in the 1980s, the University of East Anglia had a writing course and they were famous because they were the only ones. And now I think most universities have some kind of creative writing outlet. Some of the publishers now, like there's a Faber Academy, and it's a huge growth area. It has had one effect, though, that thousands and thousands of writers being created I mean, on one level, there have never been so many books published. Yeah. I think there's something like 180,000 titles, not books themselves, 180,000 titles published a year. Wow. There's this great creative urge to write. Unfortunately, the number of readers hasn't increased to match the supply of writers. Ah. Sometimes it feels like publishing is like the first day of the Somme. They've got <laughs> their, all these young, budding writers lined up. They blow the whistle, send them over the top and see who gets to the other side in one piece. People get shot down, their mm. books don't sell very well and maybe they'll be dropped quite quickly by the publisher. I always get the feeling that publishers traditionally used to stick with people. There was all, always talk about mid-list people and it's a publishing term for six, seven or eight novels to their name. Never had a breakout. Had Probably, a following. But they were sort of kept plugging along and often the publishers kept with them because they thought these people are good. They might yet break through. And sometimes they didn't. And they always stayed a mid-list author, maybe to be rediscovered later. So people who aren't really discovered in their time or aren't appreciated yep. in their time, but have a, a second wind. Exactly. Years later. I was looking on the shelves before I came to the studio. Yeah. And, what I find extraordinary is just the huge number of debut novels. Yeah. Every year it seems to be more and more. So, you know, there's that thing, everyone has a novel in them. <laughs> Sometimes you think, let it stay there. But <laughs> certainly the creative writing courses help people hone that first novel. Yeah. So I think there's a lot more uh, debuts which look very plausible. 
work of a skilled craftsman. But then you never know, does that author have a second novel in them or a third? Whereas I think there's something quite exciting about first novels, which in a way don't feel too accomplished. Or mm. there's a certain wonderful first novel energy. So we mentioned the in Banks's Wasp Factory. That's completely uh, barking mad. <laughs> and you kind of think, what sort of person could have created this yeah, that... twisted novel? And you think this is probably someone who didn't spend too much time having to read his work to other fellow students who just sat in a room and wrote it. Would a creative writing course have polished it to make it less weird? I think there's always that risk. Mm. More publishable, but less interesting in a way. I think so. Just more corporate. More corporate. Mm. So given all of that, given all of those changes that have happened as the backdrop to publishing, Mm. do you think it's possible that we'd have a grantor list that would set the world on fire again, but also just have authors who could be rock stars and icons in the way that they were in 1983? Or have we lost a bit of that now? It's going to be hard, I think. And there's a sort of debate within publishing at the moment about young male novelists, or rather the lack of. Where have they gone? A lot of them, I think, probably have gone into TV script writing or video games. So maybe it's happening elsewhere, which is sad because the novel is tremendously sort of liberating, humane thing. The Stephen Pinker, you know, the great sort of curly-headed political theorist and sociologist, says one of the reasons why the world became more liberal and humane was partially because of the invention of the novel. It allowed us to sort of imagine ourselves in other people's shoes. Yeah. So I hope, <laughs> please God, that there might be a real revival of novel reading and writing. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, literary editor of The Times, Robbie Millen. You can find all of Robbie's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print, And make sure you read the Saturday review for all the latest book reviews. And if you're a subscriber, why not have a look at the huge archive of reviews and recommendations on the website too. The producer today was Sam Chantarasak. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you again soon. (laughs) 